Greetings, dear listener, and welcome back to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. I'm Nick Johannesson, your host, and for those of you curious about the seasonal status here in suburban Norway, I can report that we had an unexpected load of snow the other day. Combined with the cold wind, this has meant a rapid rotation from earthy tweeds to thick down jackets. I've no doubt the snow will melt soon and reappear reappear later on, but for now, there is a real Arctic thing going on here. Now, as mentioned before, I have set up a Patreon now for those who would like to support the podcast. You can find it at patreon.com slash garmology. I've no new supporters this week, so thanks to those already supporting. Your kindness is very much appreciated. And I would like to say that supporting the podcast is totally optional, of course, and I'm not going to gatekeep my conversations. All 132 episodes are freely available for all to enjoy on every podcast platform you might think of. Okay, so what is this week's episode, you ask? Well, we're off to have a chat with Claire. Half an hour outside Inverness in Scotland. One thing first, though. Towards the end of our conversation, Claire has a question for you to ponder, and hopefully you'll want to send in a reply. If you'd like to have your thoughts heard, drop me an email at welldresseddad at gmail.com and I'll do a bonus episode with them. If you'd like to record your reply, do that, send it to me, or just send me your reply as an email and I'll read it out. Be aware, I'm useless at impersonations, so there's no risk there. Well, let's get started. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, today we're heading north of the border, well into Scotland, and I'm not exactly sure exactly where you are, Claire, but I'm sure you'd like to tell us all about it. Yes. Um, hi, Nick. Yeah. So, um, yeah, where am I? <laughs> Good question. No, but actually, physically, you will find me and the mill and the team literally about 30 minutes drive just northeast of Inverness. So we're not at the, the top of Scotland, but we're a good bit up in the heart of the Highlands, as I like to call it, as a, as a district called Ross and Cromarty. So, so yes, we're very near the Highland capital of Inverness, but we're a 30 minute, 20 mile northeast um, drive um, of that capital. Okay, well, I think I know roughly where you are then. Yeah. So let's start out with, who are you, Claire? So who am I? Yes. Um, well, I am uh, a founder um, to what I feel is a rebellion of, of many things. A, a mill has become a movement, but but um, on paper, you know, absolutely. Um, um, in my wisdom, I felt like it would be uh, an important thing and a personal um, choice and journey for me to bring back um, weaving of fabrics to the region that I call home. So the mainland Highland region, you know, and, and it has very different um definitions so you go back you know historically the highlands is you know north of Perth, for example but the district and barazat came out by the scottish government in 1996 that redefines the highlands because i know there is mills in murrayshire for example and which is not terribly far from us maybe 60 miles down the east coast but 
as the mainland highland region is defined, today we're the only mill in the region and we opened um, in 2018. So yes, yeah, so I wanted to bring this back. I will caveat all of that and that I have not trained in anything that I do in the sense of creating fabrics, textiles, creating clothes, none of that. Um, so inexperience um, is your greatest asset. Some famous entrepreneur once said, and I, I very much embrace that quote on a daily basis. I <laughs> trying to think out of the box. But yeah, so I started Prickly Thistle in 2018. But yeah, I mean, the Highlands, as many as of your listeners will know, is very, very famous as a region in terms of defining a type of clothing, Highland dress, one of those rare regions around the world that has a very, very close connection to a certain look and a certain style. So you started Prickly Thistle in 2018. What were you doing before that? Did you just suddenly wake up one morning and think, yeah, <laughs> I fell let's out start of, a mill? I fell out of bed and bumped my head. <laughs> but no, certainly um, I, before that, I trained actually as a chartered accountant. And so I worked in professional practice and industry in a financial role for the best part of 13 years. So, so that was my... Um, education, higher education, professional um, qualification, I became a member of the Institute of Chartered Accountants of Scotland. And yes, yeah, so I had I had the, you know, the great opportunity in my 20s and 30s to really work from taxi drivers doing self-assessment the day before the deadline to working with group structures, um, overseas subsidiaries and yeah, all sorts of random sectors. Um, it all happens in the Highlands, despite what people think. Um, so yes, I worked in and out of industry, as I say, working then for family owned businesses and, and being uh, kind of on the ground um, financial support to them rather than being maybe more of a sort of corporate undertaker someone said to me that when you work in a professional practice everything's done you're just telling everybody <laughs> there's the bottom line and this is what we need to do planning wise so so yeah so did that for 13 years and yeah so kind of a few things happened to me in my personal life around my mid later 30s and yeah I just thought you know, I really wanted to do something a bit different. And it was really sort of calling back to me as a person rather than professional Claire. It was really, you know, what could I do that I could feel really, really proud of? Um, don't get me wrong, there was a accountancy type um, skills were, were, were drawn out, um, due diligence, as I call it, um, going into a sector I knew nothing about. But so I had to use my head to really get my head around some of the challenges, which I'm sure we'll we'll discuss. And I've listened to some of your podcasts and you've spoken to other people in the sector and it's it's been a bumpy ride for the industry. I say that's a financial person. Um, and how could I come in and do something that really helps um, all of that past learnings and really make something really important for the future? Now, I don't want to cast any shade on accountants because I'm sure <laughs> they're all wonderful people, but I imagine you were feeling a bit bored, a little unfulfilled. Yeah. And no, then, yeah, no, there was, do you know what? I absolutely, absolutely love, I loved my job. I loved being able to solve problems, you know, and, and this is another thing I see quite often about Prickly Thistle is that we're a solutions company. That's what we do, you know, in terms of where we, how far we've come in the projects we do. We're a solutions company for the future. And so I really, really loved my job. Um, but it was it was really yeah just about thinking about corporate cultures I suppose in some respects and how could I you know rebel a little bit and how could I redefine what that means to be part of of a company and a business and a group of people and 
I'm sure we'll talk about this too, maybe with my B Corp status and how we achieve that. But the whole social equity piece around um, what, how can be a business, how can a business be a force for good in every sense, in every ethical aspect? Um, it's not just create a foundation for your huge profits. It's you know every every aspect. So I really wanted to kind of how could I shake up modelling um, and the context of where we are today, economically, socially, environmentally? I think we need businesses play a really important role. We're a tiny one in the north of them, north of Scotland, but everywhere around the world, I think, is really thinking about how do we tackle some of these really, really big problems we have. Now I can tell you're speaking as an accountant now because you're kind <laughs> of sucking all the romance out of establishing a small mill. Um, but there must be something there. I mean, yeah. where did the idea for a mill come from? Did you just yeah. take a wrong turn or...? No, no, no. I mean, I, and I definitely do not mean to suck the romance out whatsoever. It's very much, you know, it's the rebel in me. Let's let's think, of, you know, the rebellion, the activism and really think about, you know, and let's parachute straight into Culloden. Um, you wear your values and when you put something on that you feel so fundamentally passionate about, you're prepared to fight for it. And I think that for me, if, if we have questions around defining tartan or Highland dress, that is so special about history but should be part of future history so this is where it all ties in there's very much a rebel in here with huge love and passion for change you know and I think um so so yeah so I would say it's more rebel <laughs> than than anything else but um yeah so in terms of you know why did I want to you know this see this apologies listeners you'll hear me then I randomly go off and segues and then I forget what the question was <laughs> so what was the other part of that question Nick um well I'm still trying to sort of find out where the idea to start a mill came from oh yeah um or whether that was just part of the building blocks because you wanted to make something else and had to start from scratch or yeah, yeah. no absolutely there was um so this this journey of I wanted to kind of remove myself from I was in a particular industry um, and I wanted to do something a bit different something I felt really emotionally connected to so legacy tartan identity we know there's so many stories around how tartan is so synonymous with characters Um, you know you've got myths you've got legends you've got heroes you've got heroines you know tartan is so symbolic of these amazing stories and and forming identity you know it is a cloth of identity by definition so for me um, there was this real personal journey of identity and what does it mean what does legacy mean and how could I actually be part create a vocation or a lifestyle where I could be really you know really embedding embed myself in that so I thought tartan nothing to do with the fact that tartan is basically excel spreadsheets with color I throw that joke in everywhere I go that's my accountancy in me it's like yeah pick tartan because I you know i pretty okay with a few columns and rows <laughs> so I think I might know um a little bit but um so yeah so I really started out in a shed as most people do um in my garden when I quit my job and told my husband you know I'm going to try this and he's like oh my goodness Claire right okay my father just passed away and everything and he's like she's having a moment we'll build her a shed and she's going to start designing tartans and not only designing tartans, but really get connecting with the industry getting to know the lay of the land how many um, mills are here, whether they're spinners, they're dyers, they're finishers. You know, I volunteered to be a trustee of the Scottish Tartan Authority. I threw, my, threw myself in for the best part of two years of going and seeing everyone and learning as much as possible about this amazing 
um, industry that Scotland's actually world famous for. And the kind of, you know, the kind of the, the other side, if you like, of that was really quite sad. It was like so small and you knew the history, you know, something like seven out of 10 people used to be employed in textiles from jute mills in Dundee to what was happening in, you know, Paisley and all of the islands. I mean, it was just a massive part of our economy. Not so much the Highlands ever, um, but definitely elsewhere. And so, so yeah, so doing the deep dive of what was the current lay of the land and what was the, the historical narrative and story. And so, yes, yeah, so I was designing and commissioning out the odd um, bolt of cloth for, for Tarrant Designs I would create for a few clients. And, and then I started to really have an appreciation, respect for business models in terms of how they were operating, you know, and how challenging it was for them to take on small commissions. You know, we've seen the industry go up and down. There's been a bit of a commoditization. There's survival, you know, there's compromises. And so quite often to do little small pieces is you know it's really challenging on an operational level when you're trying to run leanly shall we say so so working with a few mills and totally getting that you know I wasn't walking in with a 30,000 meter run of anything for the next five years on a quarterly basis you know none of that you know I was just this mad person in the highlands who decided to do tartan and here's could I have 30 meters of this please <laughs> um so fitting that in and so I totally totally understood and respected how that was challenging because I could see you know where it was and where it, you know and um what the current um climate was so it was a case of if I'm going to ever get myself out of a shed and actually create a job for another person which was a really big part of the challenge I threw to myself as I wanted to create jobs in the region in this space um I thought it'd be more around the designing and the finished products and everything. I didn't think we'd actually be making cloth um, because it made sense for me to support the existing mills in the best way I could. But actually, without being big orders, it was a pain in the whatever. So um, it took me down the route after a year or so of going and speaking to everybody I got to know who ran all of the mills and being totally upfront and, and transparent with them and saying, you know, I think maybe I I might start weaving, not to compete with them or anything. You know, um, you know, and I've got a Highlanders Honor piece that I can explain to you what that means. And they're like, "You're mad! <laughs> what are you doing?" And um, so so that need to build a mill came from realizing, <clears throat> excuse me, the challenges, the current challenges that they were facing. And yeah, so until I could. Yeah, just get sort of hands on with the whole process and, and, and see what I could do. So, yeah, so it was kind of it was never part of the initial idea. And um, it was just something that came along. And then, you know, then it was like, well, how do I build a mill? And that was, yeah, that was that's where we took to crowdfunding. Yeah, because there are a few ways you could go about that. You could have a lot of money, which you then spend on buying highly modern and efficient equipment. Absolutely. Or... Or you do what we did. <laughs> but yeah, so no, fundamentally, and this was maybe part of my corporate rebel mood of the time, you know, having optimised every bottom line, you know, how do you actually, you know, it was all about stakeholder wealth, um, which I'm now kind of trying to make amends for maybe in some respects. But it was really thinking about how do we create jobs for people? How do we keep the balance of a fair economy social equity and that fairer distribution of wages and how do we create jobs for effectively eight billion people on the planet now and this whole trend of whether it's industry 4.0 or it's you know it's manufacturing optimization and we have robots and we have ai you know doing all of these jobs which is incredible 
but then we think about poverty and we think about quality of life and existence for so many other people. So as much as it would make sense in some, maybe old Claire, advising somebody, here's this loom, it produces X picks per minute, this is how, you know, the minimal staff you need, this is then the cost per meter, this is the markup, this is, you know, very much the scale of old um, ways of building business plans. I thought, no, we need to go back to, you know, having people involved. And I think that's something that's really important about tartan textiles, but also everything now we're learning that, you know, what makes something truly beautiful? A big part of that is knowing where it came from and who made it. So yeah, so the crowdfunding piece was then, you know, I think if I'd said, here's this modern loom from Europe, and this is the business plan, here's the next three years P&L, and this is how we'll get payback and done all my classic training pieces to a bank, I would have got asset finance, not a problem. I rock up and say, I want to buy these looms. One of them's a hundred years old. <laughs> Nobody wants them. I don't know how to work it and I don't have somebody who can show me, but I do believe <laughs> I can work it out. Do you think you could lend me money? Um, obviously the answer, you know, there was a very much a kind of, you know, we um we um love your passion, <laughs> but there's nothing we can do. So it was really taking the story globally and really brass necking it as we say in Scotland to try and get as many people to share this 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 narrative of there's no mills left in the highlands of Scotland it's it's the ancestral home to highland race you know this famous last battle on british soil you know we have this clan diaspora that is huge around the world you know it's one of the most iconic types of designs um, that you'll see and um there's just no mills and you know so we're going to bring it back I'm a Highlander this is what we're going to you know we're going to have these five threads of purpose we're going to create jobs we're going to do all of these things as authentic as we can we're going to really push hard on resurrecting and regenerating a Scottish supply chain and um, so yes we took it to um, a platform called Kickstarter and I was really really lucky in terms of a few people I managed to somehow get involved and spread the word for me um bootstrap style and yeah we just we just created this film and we said this is what we're going to do and and crowdfunding we did wasn't like some of the crowdfunding that I think is more uh, prominent in the UK um, in the sense that everybody sees the equity crowdfunding so you get a very 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 small percentage of an alphabet share in a company and um, this was traditional crowdfunding this was like you know 16th century 15th century you see printmakers selling advanced copies of books before they created them so we sold um advanced copies if you like of this um, black house mill tartan in various forms blankets throws etc so people were with that little bit of surplus that we got from those orders gave us seed capital to go and acquire and save these looms and bring them back to life which we're, we're now custodians for so yes yeah, so we did that a couple the first one failed this is the the, the reality of it all the first one failed and um, but we went back we changed it we did plan b and um yes yeah, so we did a couple of little crowd money crowd funds during 2018 2019 and then 2020 has as a new co and um yeah <laughs> that's another this would, this would be the longest podcast you've ever had nick <laughs> But can we just put a pin right yeah. there? Because I'm a bit curious that when you did these crowdfundings, um, looking back now, um, what was the sort of state of the mill? What looms did you have? Uh, what promises were you really making to the people who were funding you? And how certain was it that you'd actually manage this? Yeah. No, I mean, yes, yeah, certain. Um, there's no guarantees in life, I think. Um, and we didn't expect, you know, 
the last three years. I think the whole world has ne- definitely not expected the last three years. But for us, there was two major aspects. One we've completed on, the second one we haven't. Um, the first one was about bringing back weaving to the Highlands of Scotland. So we've done that. And we're so proud. And we've done so much more since then. The second aspect, which still has to be completed, is regenerating um, an old stating. So there was no mill as such that existed that we we acquired and it was sitting like a museum and we brought it back to life. We were building from absolute scratch. The last mill in this region, which you might already know, was Hunter's Abrora, a big tweed mill. Um, and it, yeah, so that was, you know, that's when, where when yeah. So the in the 90s, so they were very much, yeah, so I mean, you know, hugely supported by the royal family, obviously on, you know, making their way north to Castle and what have you, very much around the vintage and, and birth year of Johnson's of Elgin, another huge mill and, and got that 250 years of trading legacy um, but yeah Hunters Abroda was really the only mill in the mainland highlands you know you there's there was one in Spinningdale that didn't produce much you know you can do a bit of googling and research on it and it you know a fire destroyed it and it's in the middle of this kind of random street road in Sutherland also but there was there was really nothing despite the romance of the Highlander <laughs> and this this, yeah. this, cl- this clan story there is there was no industry but then I always think you know going back to district weavers and how it actually came to be but um so yes so bringing back so we did that 2018 2019 our plan b was we're going to sell less product to give us enough seed capital to, to acquire these looms and we'll rent somewhere and then once we get going then we're going to regenerate this old building on the black isle and do re- rural regeneration and it gives us a permanent home to 2023 we're still in the rented building um didn't foresee 2020 2020 was actually meant to be our year that we would start work on on regenerating this building but then we shut for three months of that year <laughs> come the 23rd of march and it's been a, a bit of you know it's been a roller coaster you know trying to kind of really think about is it um and the ethics i think we all had a really big ethical kind of like um cleanse maybe around covid in terms of you know what are we doing sense of humanity and and then obviously the climate side of things is becoming really really evident that we need to change there too so so for me as a business it was a case of does it make sense to have this big building and and take on financial pressure and might might impact on the model and the ethics of the model now or is actually just keep everyone in a job, pay as much as you can and keep that aspect going. So for me, I, I always called that rather than taking the risk of let's just horse on with the building um, because, you know, the heart of everything we've got um, and the building will come. So, so yeah, so that was the promise around it. It was about bringing back weaving. It was about doing this rural regeneration piece. But plan B meant that we were going to phase that out. Then lo and behold, 2020 came and, well, yeah, 21, 22. This year, totally different challenges. Um, so you can tell I'm an accountant start talking about the economics of it all, but it's a very challenging landscape right now um, for lots of reasons with the different wars that are going on and cost of living. So, yeah, so we still have to complete, but, you know, we own it. where We keep it really transparent and real about what we do um, and around how we make decisions, etc., but we feel like we've picked up some lots of really good, ambitious um, 
um, other aspects to prickly thistle that we didn't even think about in the beginning. Um, so yeah, so it's kind of, yeah, we just, yeah, good intentions, you know, that's what we have. Okay, I'll note down other aspects and we'll get back to the other aspects in a bit because yeah. I, I'm still dying to know you rented a building you've got some cash you heard about some old looms I take it yep and were totally seduced by the idea what was the reality of filling a rented space with old looms something you <laughs> have said you didn't know how to operate no no absolutely bonkers um went to the Scottish borders um and as I say, I got to know a lot of people over the, the due diligence time in my shed. And um, yeah, I was just searching out these looms because they were like hen's teeth. You know, who wants an old Dobcross-based loom, shuttle loom, when you've got high-speed rapiers and high-speed jacquards and, you know, no one knows how to work these anymore, Claire. You know, you're absolutely mad. You've got, you know, Nukandu who have um, one. You've got, you've got one or two people still with these old shuttle looms. And so, yes, yeah, so it was just word of mouth. Um, yeah, and eventually found them in a mill next door to a mill person, a person who owned a mill, um, who said, actually, if you want to ask next door, they potentially have some. So, of course, I didn't know if half of it was missing. I'm in there and the guy's saying, yeah, these are all working. We haven't used them for about five years, but they're all fine. We just, you know, tuning wise, we just don't have a tuner anymore, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, note to sell, find a tuner. <laughs> and I thought, right, okay, they're all there. So yeah, let's, 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 how much are they? And um, so, yeah, so we, we did, we agreed a price. I had them on the back of 240, sorry, 40, was it 40 foot? Yeah, it'd be 40 foot um, flatbed trailer lorries hauled these four looms north by about 250 miles um at that point they were they didn't even get switched on you know as I say I was really quite naive but super trusting and I hope that's part of ethics and the way I feel for the future trust people and people trust you and um yeah so hold them north put them in place and I thought right we better find somebody to show me how to work these and um as it happens um all credit to my husband um who works in the motor trade um we i said to him one night i said alan you think you could like speak to every every garage in the brora area and just because in these rural communities the garage people work people who work in garages know everyone <laughs> it's a bit like the corner shop okay. or that so i was like okay so if you ask the garages do they know anyone in the villages brora golsby you know thinking helmsdale whatever um that used to work a hundred of brora so that started the whole investigation and then put me in touch with this chap who is now a joiner. And um, so I got his number from my husband and I phoned him up and I said, oh, he says, oh, yeah, I used to work at Johnson's Belg. And I said, well, I've got these old looms. Do, would you mind if you're passing? Could you come in and let me know if, you know, you can help us? So he came in and he was like, oh, yeah, no, he says, well, in the latter years of, of um Hunters uh, Abroad, they'd moved to the modern rapier, so they weren't weaving with these anymore. And he said, and actually, he said, I do more warping and knotting in. I was like, all oh, right. And I'm like, oh no, my heart started to sink. And I was like, oh, Ricky, okay. And he said, but he says, there's this guy who cuts the grass at the bowling club. <laughs> and he you, he was a tuner. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, immediately, I'm like, right. Um, do you know where he lives? Have you got his number? And, uh, but he said, he did, I said, do you have his number? He's like, no. I said, do you know where he lives? And I said, could you go to his house? So he went and chapped in this uh, chap's house uh, door and said, okay, there's this girl down the road. <laughs> she has these looms. Um, can I give you her number? And could you give her a call or what have you? And um, maybe you can help her out. And um, yeah, and Martin has been with us 
every week since. And Martin is in his 70s. And um, yeah, he was very much. So Martin Dent, um, who trained in Belfast from a very young age um, on these very looms, came over here to work at Hunters and then Hunters closed down. Um, but he stayed in the area. And so, yeah, so he's been an absolute godsend. And um, it could be a whole podcast on Martin. In fact, you should do a podcast with Martin. He is so fascinating as a gentleman and so giving of his knowledge. Um, the one thing I remember him saying early on, well, there's two things Martin said that are just, yeah, it was just incredible. He would just, he came in and he just said, I wish I was 20 years younger because he was just like so excited, you know, to see these looms that, that he'd loved and so much respect for and and the, the the engineering works of art that they are. And I always remember the first day we did our, we put the loom on for the first time with our first warp and he rubbed his hands together and me and a couple of young girls were there and he says, right, okay, let's make some noise. And this was, you know, it was become such a metaphor for what we do, let's make some noise. Um, but yeah, he's just an absolute darling of a man. He's so kind and patient with everyone who works here at Prickly Thistle and then another I mean they're all incredible um Martin started us off um certainly but every single one of them are absolutely incredible incredible people not a lot of us have ever been trained in this and um but yeah so Ross is another gentleman that um yeah but I feel like I could talk probably for 20 minutes solid I feel like I'll stop and let you ask questions Nick no I'm not interrupting you I'm just enjoying the flow of the story here <laughs> But yeah, but, but basically that's how we got them going. I was very lucky. My husband, obviously, you know, husband of nearly 30 years, came to my rescue again and found me a tuner. And um, yeah, so we, we got the looms going. And it, but it did take two years. Um, and this is where Ross comes in, Ross Roger, um, who works with us. Um, he's former oil and gas, heavy engineering. So a real appreciation for physics and positive energy engineering so I imagine oil and gas big heavy cranes etc so no computers just making stuff move with cogs and chains and gears and all of that kind of stuff and a bit of oil um so so yes yeah, so Ross I managed to convince him because I knew him from a previous um workspace I managed to convince him so what we have is this like really cool kind of like Batman and Robin situation where you've got I don't know who's who, um, but you've got Martin who has the incredible knowledge of how these machines work and has seen so, because sometimes you have the same problem presented to you, but there is a hundred solutions you can pick from. It's never, oh, that's that, you know, why is that shuttle turning? It's not the same thing you have to do every time. So he has this unique experience of just done it. Um but in his time, when he worked for mills that were, you know, and there was thousands and thousands of these looms used in the UK. And, um, but there was massive stores of just new things. Oh, let's go and get a new, you know, um, get some new vibrators off here. Let's get a new clutch. Let's get a new, you know, there's our picking sticks. There's, yeah, you know, we need to get a new um, shaft box. I can't remember what the name of that, but for our bottles, um, our shuttles flying and out of, um, everything was new. Whereas actually, I'd come up the road with these four looms and boxes and boxes of stuff that I'd proudly sorted based on size. So that was round, that was square, and that was long and thin um, of worn parts and some of them broken. So I had these shelves full of bits um, and he was like, oh, so he knew exactly how to get the looms working safely and correctly. And um, But there was a lot of really engineering challenges. So Ross 
absolute metal wizard can make anything, fabricate anything, again, solutions every single time from his engineering background. So everything we were missing, Ross knew how to make it work. And with Martin's guidance, this was then understanding and the art of weaving when it comes to these looms, because there's so many moving parts at the exact same time. Um, and um, so, yes, yeah, so this little combination of the two of them have really, you know, got it going. But And it did take them two years to sometimes dive right deep into these looms because I think it's like the kind of analogies when you're driving your car. If you don't repair one part, it starts to wear on other parts and it can really go quite deep throughout the whole mechanics of it. So the, these looms had had a few wobbly nuts, bolts, and, you know, the wear would be a bit wonky on one side and the other, so there's a lot of compensation. But that took two years easily to work around the four looms to really try and get back into the the guts of them all and um, to find out where some of these kind of weak worn parts were correct them as much as possible so that they can weave for another 100 years because we were very proud to say that we have a loom um, that was built in 1929 and as I like to say it was built um, in a time called BT before times another little side thing of mine about the polyester in the world thanks to tights so if you think about BT that time before tights and um, we have a loom that is a marker in that manufacturing sand of when things were proudly built to last and then in the context of textiles that's when we really really you know natural fibres were everything we never wore polymers we never wore all of these chemicals um I didn't know this um, when I started this journey. This has just been five, six years of learning. But this loom to me is like, wow. And, and then from a kind of emotional, kind of human fascination perspective is that you stand at that loom, you see that big wooden beam at the front and it's all worn. And how many hands for a hundred years have touched that? You know, how many babies were born? How many people did they lose? You know, what was the story of the day? What was the politicians doing that day in 1934? You know, it's if, if looms could talk, They've, you know, there's just this emotional value that we feel so, so proud of what we've done and so lucky that we're proving, you know, some points that, you know, there's a good chunk of the past, that I think, is the future. And see, here you came into the romance quite naturally. <laughs> so brilliant. <laughs> um, but these old looms are remarkable. I mean, they were, they were solidly made when they made oh, them. Yeah. So looking at a modern modern loom now compared to the old ones, I mean, they're two different oh, beasts. Absolutely. And this is where I would sit down with any asset finance manager now and say, actually, if you really want to think about useful life, you know, you think about the write-off policy of a modern loom. It's like so incredibly costly. You know, they'll change the digital formatting, you know, become so redundant. Is there a lot of plastics? There's a lot of polymer, you know in the context of ethics and sustainability and manufacturing responsibility now, then, I, you know, you really question um, the actual physical point of the modern looms versus these ones that are 100 years old, create amazing fabric, and they literally should run for hundreds and hundreds of years if they're looked after. Um, so, yeah, so it's... Um, so, yeah, so I always throw my accountancy things back in, saying that's the best asset I've ever had. If I'm going to have an asset value for a hundred years <laughs> you know the write-off on that is next to nothing yeah i guess the point of the modern ones is that they uh, whack out many meters per hour of really wide fabric so they're really producing while they produce while the years they do work oh yeah no absolutely i think you know it's great that um the 
you know, and it's like many sectors, you know, food industry, car manufacturing, anything that's it's, it's manufacturing based. It's just, yeah, I've kind of now come to a stage where you start to question the tipping point when you look at the kind of situation with circular economy and wasteful consumption. So we're another saying I have is like, just because we can doesn't mean we should. So in the context of textiles, the global south just now with waste colonisation and the amount of clothing that's hardly worn and shipped to other countries to be, you know, landfill um, on their site. Why are we producing so much so cheaply when it's not valued and loved? You know, and I think that's, so for me, that's a really fundamental question for society today in every aspect of what we create and what we consume. Just because we can doesn't mean we should. You know, and I think, you know, our wastefulness is hugely damaging. Um, and at the same time, when you're doing it all with equipment, we're really not tackling, I think for me, is one of the most important UN sustainable development goals is ending poverty, you know, because there should be jobs for people. And and maybe, you know, it's massive consumer behaviour there here and lifestyle stuff, but we should be paying more for less. And when you do, you love it more. It's like at Christmas, you know, there's that one favourite little gift from Santa. It's like if you have a hundred kids are spoilt for choice, kind of where we are just now. I really feel like we we're missing things because we're just hunter-gatherers. We can have it all and um, we can produce it all. We can make it faster. But why mm. and who for? So I think it's great that we can do those things, but you have to ask the real question as to why are we doing it? And then you start looking at the commercial um, exploitation, maybe, etc. And then does that then really tip the balance again on this unfair um, society? Yeah, because it must be hard making clothes when you're up against ultra-fast fashion companies oh. where a consumer can now order a box full of 100 garments for almost nothing instead of buying one really yeah. nice, properly made item. Oh, absolutely. And that's been a huge... This, again, wasn't really part of that. It was like, you know, I was rather naive. I'm going to bring back weaving to the high of Scotland. Not really thought about it. But here we are, and we've learned so much. Now we're fighting for the fabric of the planet with tartan. Um, but yeah, when it comes to clothing, we, every one of us at work at the mill, we have all completely changed. You know, that real appreciation for how many hours it takes to make fabric, how many hours it takes to make garments. You know, the health implications of maybe wearing textiles you have no idea what's in it you know and wrapping our children up in it you know it's this informed decisions as consumers and you see on some food products you know nowadays like i'll not eat anything unless i know what's in it but we kind of forget that clothing is next to the biggest organ on our body which is our skin and we're drinking it you know and it's i think there's a lot of unproven safety it's all about bt before tight so it's only one generation that we've really been wearing crazy amounts of polymers so we're doing little research active, um, activism bits around health studies to really understand that so people can make a choice. You know, we're not telling people what to wear, but maybe people might think twice when they realise acrylic wool is just oil. It's not wool, yeah. you know, and the, and the labelling is wrong. But yeah, going back to that whole piece around value proposition, I think because in clothing, fast fashion has just made it normal and okay that actually we can get so much for five pound, five euros, ten dollars, or anything like that, and we are so disconnected to the the imagery and the story behind it. And I, now it's, and I don't think people are consciously um, 
consuming in that way. It's just not, they've not been given the chance to make an informed decision around it. Um, you know, to think about, you know, what woman is behind it? What factory was she in? Does she get to see her children? Um, is she paid per piece? You know, I, in the Western world, we talk about, well, I won't work anywhere unless I get X per hour. But yet we're, we're and we're very, very ethical as people, but we're funding slavery. We're funding, you know, environmental destruction and because we don't see it on the label we get a lovely picture of this or you know here's the latest fashion here's the latest look we'll see tv programs morning tv programs here in the uk you know here's how to get the look for a hundred pound and i just sit there and go there's probably 20 hours of work behind that garment and if that person's only you know that that person's paid 10 pound an hour our living wage is just going up to 12 so if they're paid £12 an hour and they've had, you know, how can that whole outfit be £100? not even paid the person. And then you've got the VAT and you've got all the markups and the materials. So it's really challenging. And I think that's, it's a really interesting you've asked me that because I'm doing, trying to do quite a lot behind the scenes, speaking to policymakers, speaking to other people in the industry, speaking to people in education about how do we, it's not down to marketing of a brand to kind of say it all. There's a duty of care and an obligation there to let people really think about what goes into it. So so until we actually let people really think about what they're buying, where it came from, who made it, what happens at the end of life, how many hours are involved in making any of this, um, it's it's you know, it's very much a kind of compete on price and compete on what we see in the sector, a lot of greenwashing around, you know, the ethics and sustainability of the garments, etc. So, so yeah, so it is a real challenge for sure, Nick, but we're so, so lucky that we're, we're building this little, you know, suffragette type thing of women where we're kind of like, okay, we want to feel a bit badass as people will see on our website. This is what we're all about. You know, we're going to get stuff done. Um, and yeah, we're kind of just shading and learning and um, you realise on a financial side, you're not actually having to have more money every year because you buy less, you weigh it more. If anything, you might save money than all of the kind of disposable pieces that you're buying. So, so our efforts and focus are around with like-minded women because women typically are huge consumers of clothing. I know because I have a wardrobe <clears throat> that proves that I didn't know what I was doing. Highly flammable. There's slavery all over everything, but I didn't know. And I'm not a person that is into funding slavery, but I just didn't think about my clothing being, you know, part of that. Um, and I just didn't think about the oil at all and the environmental side of things. So, uh, so yeah, so yeah, I've kind of, yeah, I've learned a lot and I look back on myself up until I started this and going, gosh, I was an unconscious consumer without a doubt. Um, and I just feel like it's, it's really nice to give people the chance to make an informed decision, especially when we see what's going on in the world right now. Indeed. Yeah. Now you've got your four looms set up. They're mm -hmm. working, you're weaving, you're making your tartans. Mm -hmm. How many metres do you manage an hour? Yeah, I mean, we're not a, we're not a huge production um, business, so we probably do about 60 to 70 picks per minute. Um, and it depends on the density of the cloth. So depending on the yarn qualities that we're working with in the wool um, and how many threads per inch we want to put in there, our looms will always run at that speed. So some cloths can be very, very slow for a high thread count. If it's maybe a lower thread count, they will come through quicker. So you're looking at, on average, if you had a loom on for a day for maybe seven hours, you could maybe produce seven metres of our high thread count cloth or maybe 20 
<clears throat> 20, 25 metres of our, our, our um, kind of denser woolen spun yarn. So it's, it's, it's a lot more lively and we don't pack it so thick. So, yeah, so we don't produce masses at all. Um, so, yeah, so the looms got the, the same steady speed and we just have a variety of yarn qualities that we weave with. Um, so, yeah, so compared to some of the maybe more modern mills where, you know, our biggest beam ever of, of warp would be, 250 meters we know you've got warp beams out there in mills in yorkshire and we've been really really lucky to go to um the burberry mill um, very early on and just watch what they were doing which was incredible for sure but they had beams that were picked up with forklifts you know there were thousands upon thousands of meters wow. in these warps um and ours are just these little you know like toss the caber wooden beams with a bit of metal <laughs> that runs through the middle and we use a little trolley to you know hook it into the back of the loom and yeah 250 meters is a massive beam for us um and we just yeah we'll do runs as small as 30 meters as well so so yeah so we're not big producers um and we don't want to be big producers um we really want to show that the the viability of all of this so that if there was more interest and demand again for people to wear woolen uh, woolen woven textiles in Scotland then you take the little model of prickly thistle and you move it 200 miles to the west you know and it's about really driving the SME the micro businesses and I think that really helps with the social equity piece that I think is important so we want to prove that we can make it work and then help see that come across the region and start bringing back all these little mills no one mill should own the market no it should definitely be um, small um, and real Mm. It makes me think of uh, the Hebrides and Harris Tweed and how important that yeah. distributed model for the society on the islands. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think, you know, and I think pre all of that, what you would have seen in the Highlands, when we go back to the story of the Highlands and how the clan system was born, um, which is always very fascinating to discuss. But um, district weavers, you know, it would have been the same model. You would have had lots of people in small communities weaving fabric um, right across the country. Um, and it would have been similar, um, well, it would have been local, it would have been native fleece for sure, um, which is a real challenge today. And I know it was discussed a little bit on that podcast um, um, with the, the ladies from Harris Tweed. But um, yeah, so it's, it's really, it's bringing back, but it's, it's not even unique to Scotland or Harris. This was just what we did everywhere in the world. <laughs> you know, yeah. when you think about in Rome, you think, you know, everybody made things locally for their local community, grew, you know, we were growing our food. We were, you know, we had, everything was local. So, um, so yeah, and it's, you know, has Scotland somehow been lucky enough to have this really interesting voice on the global stage, you know, because we have this massive history Um and can that help inspire bringing back literally right across the US, right across Australia, you know, every Europe, Germany, you know, this would have happened everywhere because we all wore clothes. And that, you know, it's one of the fundamentals. So we just want to kickstart something. You know, we've got a bit of a tartan reputation. It is a rebellious cause, you know, and um, how can we prove that absolutely this works? So, yeah, so, so to see... Um, what would have been here before as well, but not that well documented. It would have existed before on this part of the, the country. So when you started out with the mills and the weaving part, did you see that you would be weaving cloth for other people to use or were you going to also produce things from the cloth? 
yeah, no, good question. <laughs> Everything's changed again. <laughs> That's just the reality of 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 um, yeah, running your own business or, or or life in general. But but yeah, so the intention was then absolutely how could we create designs for others um, and then be commissioned to create fabric. And we did really simple products to begin with. We did a bit of interiors. We did some scarves. You know, we wanted to help service the project end to end piece for customers. And um, kind of come year two, between year three, we realised, gosh, I was in danger of trying to be everything for everyone. So we were this kind of, you know, yes, we can do this. Yes, can we can do that. And as a startup, you're like, yes, we'll just, you know, we'll do anything. Um, and that's when it came um, two years ago, um, at the beginning of 2020, well, the end of 2020, sorry, or the end of 21, I get confused with the last few years. Um we thought actually let's try and do one thing and just do it to our best ability and that's where we have slowly stepped into um women's clothing as being our main focus in terms of what we do um because i felt like there was an opportunity to share that message that narrative you know those conscious consumers those women who like me that once somebody shares with you all of the information you go oh my goodness I can't believe I bought I'm not I'm you know that's it I'm now going to check this out I'm going to read these labels <laughs> I am now going to absolutely ask them where did this come from um I've seen the so, lights <laughs> exactly <laughs> um so we felt like that that space you know in, in Highland Dress there's the kilt world you know there is the clan system tartans there's interiors there's there's so many different pieces and there's been famous designers before doing different things out who are not necessarily scottish um or based in scotland but yeah it just felt like we devised a really interesting way of making clothes really you know again i say interesting way it was the past all credit to the people who thought we're not going to waste anything but we realized we you know we scarves and blankets there was other people doing that but clothing one one aspect of the story was we just you know we'd learned to weave all this fabric there was tears there was blood there was all sorts of things and getting it going and then we were kind of experimenting on well how can we make a really cool you know pair of trousers for example with some of our fabric and we were looking at all these patterns going oh my god look how much fabric we're going to waste this is nuts and I'm squirreling away in my research and going globally 25 percent plus of all textiles are binned in the pattern room oh my goodness this is bonkers one is we took ages to weave this and we're going to put a quarter of it in some bin or use it to, you know, justify it by upcycling it into something else. And then, um, yeah, so there was one is, and then you think about the, the environmental aspect of it as well. And you're thinking all that energy to create that and it's beautiful cloth. So inspired by the past, the great kilt itself was one big rectangle. And in fact, you're not, oh no, Denmark. Is it Legos Denmark? Or yeah, Legos from Denmark, isn't it? Not Norway. Lego is Denmark, yes. Lego is Denmark. So this is where I'm going. I've just given away a big clue here. Wrong country. Um, but Lego. So I think of the Greek hilt like a piece of Lego. This big rectangle that you could, you know, you could use it in different ways to create different garments. So it could be obviously something that covered your your lower half from the knee up, but you can also wear it as a cape. There was, you know, infinite sizing opportunities on it, infinite reuse because it was this one great rectangle. And we thought, well, how can we make clothes? like lego like the great kilt how can we make really funky clothes for women where everything is a square rectangle and triangle designed so that can come apart designed so we have zero fabric waste when we're making it and how do we create dresses jumpers trousers 
coats, jackets. And on top of that, we're going to say, nah, we're not having zips or buttons. That's just another piece of hardware to deal with when only 1% of textiles, clothing is recycled in the world, right? We need to sort this out. So it kind of really took us down this rabbit hole. So we'd come up with a system of creating clothing with 100% natural fibres designed to be forever circular with huge um, size range capacity. The, the garments is as unique as the wearer because we cut on a zero waste basis. So every single you know, say, for example, they bought a, a fire-heavy hoodie that we'll see in our four times a year collection. Every single one of them will be slightly unique because we're cutting to zero-waste design. But it's as unique as the waiter. They're still part of the same tribe <laughs> of badass women. Um, but we just devised this system of solving all of these problems and realising we can make clothes with no fabric waste, with great size range, great style potential, because a lot of our stuff can be worn in several ways, like the great kilt was. And then if someday when we see the you know the rising of the of the circular economy in terms of reimagining and repair again, um, and the degrowth of manufacturing of new, which is basically turning off the fossil fuel tap into textiles, is that we're gonna have clothing that's gonna be fabric over fashion. So all of these garments can come apart and nothing's wasted. So there's lots of people out there doing upcycling and repurposing garments. But when you take them apart, it's really challenging because you have all these really random shapes to kind of work with and you're having to cut bits off. So you've got more waste again, waste to make it and waste to turn it into something else. Whereas if you Legofy everything, like when you're a kid, you sit there with all your blocks, you've got your play park, you break it down. You've got your ship tomorrow, you break it down. I'm going to build a castle. Forever infinite circular. So that's been our design muse. The rules are no no zips, no buttons, because they're size limiting and they're a bit of a faff to kind of recycle. So we've overcome all of the challenges. Kilt strap and buckle we do use. Um, that gives us everything we need when it comes to closing places that need to be closed. Um, so going back to your point on, on all the products and that initial design or initial kind of... Um, I suppose thought around what, how will we pay wages? How will we survive? Um, we've gone through this massive journey and realised one is we really enjoy making this, but we feel like we're bringing a really cool solution to the world that we're part of. Um, so yeah, so we've done a bit of everything over time and then yeah, you get a bit lost and you're a bit overwhelmed and you can't be everything to everyone. So you kind of pull it a little back, you find what's your what you want to make a difference in and that's that's where we are today in five years i have no idea who will be then <laughs> i'll give you something completely different <laughs> so how are people sort of connecting are they um do they understand do they want what you're making yeah in in terms of how do people find us or buy from us or no i'm sort of uh, are your products appealing to to customers yeah, no, absolutely. I think, you know, in terms of from a female perspective, we wanted to create garments that are, um, they're not age specific. They're very much maybe around mindset. So it, it is, you know, appreciating and understanding um, the design concepts behind it, the zero waste. These are not, when I say they're not traditional, they probably are way more traditional than what we see that's been mainstream for the last 50, 75 years in terms of this old, you know, huge amount of tailoring. Um, in the past, we would have been a bit more waste, not, want, not, and this will have to last and this will have to do, you know, the other person. So we're not going to do this to it. So we're, we're far, we're just less wasteful. Um, so, yes, yeah, so we're finding there is a movement of women out there, you know, and I think next generation as well. They're really appreciating 
the environmental impact that clothing has on the world. You know, it's, it's, it's worse than maritime and aviation combined. It's horrendous. Um, so, and the whole kind of fashion industry of models and shows and advertising and, you know, it could be sexualization. It could be, you know, of, of women, you know, looking a certain way, being a certain size, being, you know, very tight fitting, whatever, you know, whatever the messages are, there is a, for us, there's a rebellion behind that in that the sense of, you know, who's, you know, we don't want to feel like we have to conform to a lot of these kind of fashion messages that have been kind of put on women to like, you're going to a wedding, you need something new. If you're going to a dinner, you need to wear this, you know, and there's usually a sequins dressed head to toe. And it's like, this probably a recycling absolute nightmare. We just, we just feel like, there's a bunch of women who have definitely found us who really like that that ethical purpose um, behind what we're doing and weighting your values. And going back to your point on the design and aesthetic of it, absolutely. There's a lot of women who just don't want to look like everybody else because they feel fundamentally that's, you know, there is a kind of, there is a big difference as to, you know, how we feel about humanity or how we feel about, yeah, so many different things. So clothing's identity, isn't it? It says, it says so much about you. And I think, yeah, we're we're just this fresh, interesting, authentic, quirky um, brand that's just, you know, very clear about how we make things and why we do it. And yeah, people are loving it. So I, I was looking at some of the, the garments you make and mm -hmm. to me, I was thinking that looks like sort of Highland dress type things. Um, but I don't know. That might, might just maybe, I mean, my... Uh, my impression of Highland dress comes from watching Braveheart. Um, <laughs> it was the the Laird series many many years ago. Uh, probably a few episodes of Outlander or something like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I obviously have no idea what Scottish Highland dress is. Yeah. No. I mean, we do have kick-ass kilts in there. Absolutely. We've got a whole section on that where we've created kilts that are very very different to the modern kilts of today, which are quite tailored garments and beautiful and very much kind of. Um, influenced by the military aspect, post-colonial repeal of the the act of prescription, um, with the kind of yeah the, the the stitching into the pleats as opposed to just fabric manipulation. So our our kick-ass kilts are a nod to that. You know we're very proud of our of where we are. You know and it's synonymous um with the story of tartan. So I think having kilts in there, kilts for women. There's a lot of kilts for men but this is kilts for women. Um, it's fabric manipulation. Every kilt is made from whole pieces, um, but they can also be worn as capes as well. So these things double up from what you can wear in the bottom half to the top half. So I think our kilts, you would never see in any of those romantic interpretations of the Highlands. Um, and what <laughs> I find, to be honest, you've never seen that, like, for example, our... Um, you know, our full drape waist kilt or our, our maxi kilt, I don't think you would see, you would see very, very full skirts for women um, in those um, TV shows for sure. But I don't think you would see maybe our kilts kind of coming from that. Um, but what you would have had um, maybe going back, maybe the, the gents kilt, certainly maybe they're more akin to that. But, but yeah, I think what I find fascinating and it's a really interesting thing around Scottish history and what we find in museums and what has been held on to and what is the narrative, what's the story that we keep bringing forward is that how little women's clothing from that time and before is in any museum. There's none. And there is certainly stories. There, there's a lot of male, you know, that in terms of 18th, 19th century, the male regalia is absolutely 
pristine, protected in there. And I like to throw back to, to a few people I speak to and say, well, because the women of that time wore things until they were completely done. You know, they didn't have excessive amounts of clothes in wardrobes that were for special dinners, for special outings. They were practical. So everything we make absolutely can be worn every day, every night to anything. We don't design by season. We don't design by look. It's about wearing clothes that, you know, be made in a kind way, you know, with a business who's actually not just a business, you know, they're really, you know, we're, we're, we're nudging towards that big societal change um, that the world is, is, has to do. Um, but yeah, I find it fascinating, the fact that it's so male dominated what we have historically and so little of the women's wear. And I just go, well, that's because we wore it until it was finished. And when it was finished up, it ended up as a set of curtains and it was ended up as a cushion. We didn't actually have it sitting in a wardrobe to end up in a museum. But that said, what I find really fascinating now is that we have one of our kick-ass kilts in the National Archives for the National Museum of Scotland. So there was a modern contemporary curation, um, curation done by Dr Rosie Wayne this year, which she'd been working on for years. And there was a few pieces of Highland dress that went in and, and all the stuff you're imagining and the classic gents Highland dress. But defining a woman's Highland dress, you know, there's so little around that others than to say the big full skirts and maybe a shawl. Um, um, Rosie very kindly took one of our kilts and one of our very simple t-shirt designs and also a wooden shuttle with the B Corp logo on it, which we've not mentioned um, because we're the first mill in the UK to have reached B Corp, um, to we'll be accredited B Corp. <laughs> I'm conscious of time, <laughs> poor listeners will be switching off. But, but now we are in the archives, you know, and I'd like to think that in 200 years, when somebody's looking at this prickly thistle, you know, kilt, what did that mean in the 21st century? And they'll look at our story and go, oh my goodness, look what they did. You know, they were so historically connected, but so future thinking. And I love the paradox of what we are because it is such a rich, hist rich history and will immediately take people to certain stereotypes, shall we say. And I love going, well, we're all about the future history. So, in 200 years, the story will continue. The story will be, this is what was the 18th century, 19th century, 20th, but in the 21st century, when there was this happening in the world, this is how tartan was used to be part of the solution. So that's the legacy piece we're trying to write. But um, so yeah, I just love that there's no, there's hardly anything out there, apart from Isabella Fraser, McTavish's wedding dress, which we did some work with um, a group of ladies before and recreating that mistakes and everything in the cloth, we wove it on our looms in this region and they redid a workshop making her dress but apart from her dress there's very very little tartan ladies wear anywhere and um, so yeah and I just love to say it's because they wore it and eventually if it needed to be used for you know mending a set of curtains then that's what happened. <laughs> this reminds me of an episode I did with um uh oh god I forget her name Jungnickel of Politics of Patents. Okay. Um because what they're doing is delving into patent registrations from 100, 200 years back and finding patents uh, created by women. Because at the time, women, I mean, they might have only had one garment because they weren't really encouraged to do anything strenuous, like riding a bike or riding a horse or go running or anything that required anything clothing different than a, mm -hmm. a dress. So what they're doing is finding these patents for cycling attire for women, all sorts of clever stuff. It's, a, it's an excellent episode, if I may say so myself. 
But these were these were rebel women who were sort of creating garments that allowed other women to actually go out and do stuff. Yeah. And it's a, such a cool project. But, I mean, that sounds adjacent to what you were saying, that I mean, women would have just their one outfit or, and they'd use it up because they weren't really allowed to do much. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, While the I men just... were out riding horses, playing games, uh, being in the army, all sorts of activities. But, so they had to have all these cute little outfits. Yeah. But I'm sure that, I mean, the women, if they were at home, they would have still been very busy at home, <laughs> bringing up families yeah. and attending. You know, it's not like, they, I don't think a lot of them would have just been sitting. A lot of the women could have been weavers, could have been making the fabrics as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we just don't have masses and masses of historical um archives and all of this um but i think yeah i mean going back to your initial question about creating designs that people like that are fit for purpose for today absolutely um and do they like our designs and do they buy them we have this we have this kind of little poke and crossway to the past and this kind of you know questions you know about well what was it really like um but one thing we're probably more passionate about than any of the history to be honest is the future history that we're writing today. You know, what will she say or he say in 200 years is our, you know, that is our, like, that's what we're looking towards because that's what matters, you know, more than anything right now. And and we're that future history tartan brand. 100, 200 years in the future. I mean, compared to fast fashion brands where their sort of time span is getting it past the till, that's quite a difference. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, and hopefully then it kind of gives people a measure of why we do what we do and why we don't do what we do. You know, we, you know, we're there is, you know, there is there is a big, big, you know, big change required in every aspect of life. And yeah, we might just we might be this little mill in the north of Scotland producing textiles and clothing, but we feel like we're we're actually part of a bigger a bigger story, a bigger narrative. Um, Again, it's probably, yeah, we've kind of developed society where we think of everything in silos and we just kind of romanticise every little silo where we can or deal with, you know, everything is so connected, like a great big piece of cloth. You know, every everything that has happening is so interwoven with everything else. And I think, yeah, the step change and realising how your your movement impacts 10 threads down the row or 20 threads up the warp, you know, is so important. Um, and we talk about that sometimes in society, but I think making it more uh, kind of like this is a conscious, yeah, you know, conscious, you know, we don't question it, it's just automatic. Yeah, we want to show that, you know, it's not just this, yeah, we could have done a different, a hundred different things, I suppose, as a mill on the highlands of Scotland, um, but we didn't, and we didn't for a reason, um, because of this future history story that we we want to write somehow. <laughs> Now, I know you're dying to mention the B word, so off you go. <laughs> B word. Um, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, B Corp. I think, you know, it's been... A I have no idea game. what it means. I think it's just... So really, to... Yeah, B Corp is a global movement of companies that voluntarily change their founding documents, um, Articles Association, for example, in the UK. You know, their legal documents to, to justify or to... Um, explain their intention where you put people and planet before profit you know so Patagonia a big environmental activist type 
business based out in the US, started by Yvonne Chouinard, who just recently put all of his insurers um, into trust. Um, is so B Corp is yeah we're very much thinking about how can we be a force for good and um, you get you voluntarily go through this 360 assessment of your business you look at five areas of impact your corporate governance your supply chains your community your employees you look at everything you don't just cherry pick I have got this type of raw materials with this big rubber stamp on it and I'm super green and eco it's every aspect of everything that you do um it's not just the net zero story you know it's you don't cherry pick any one of these things you look at everything and you know you're not perfect and you know it's you know it's a journey but you own your weaknesses and you own your feelings and you move forward with it so we became the first B Corp certified mill in the whole of the UK. We've since seen the likes of Johnson's join. We've seen Beggs join. Um, and it's quite nice that a few of these mill guys I've got to know, they're kind of give me a little nod and they go, there's her up there with that hundred year old loom <laughs> doing what she's doing, driving transparency, ethics and sustainability and everything else she's banging on about. And I get a bit of a nod and they've been so, so generous and kind when we've been at different things and they kind of always give us a bit of a credit. But we, we just, we started that within a year of opening the mill because I was as us you know doing what I was doing I was like inspired by the story of Yvonne Schnard um, and I that's how I came across B Corp as a framework and I thought this is a really good thing this is inclusive and complete um, it's not just let's be credited for our wages let's be accredited for that I love this whole completeness piece and I thought right we're going to start this so we started it in 2019 the whole um, verification process, taking a deep dive onto where we even get our toilet roll from, how do we deal with our waste, do we have composting on site, I mean I'm obsessive, you know, I switch out lights, if there's no one in the room the light goes off, everybody thinks I'm nuts, but they're all, <laughs> they're all coming along with it, waste nothing, there's like literally the tiniest general waste bin, you were never, you know, if I, if I could have no bins I would, um, but that's another thing I'm having with Scottish government but um yeah so it looks at everything on a granular level are you doing the best thing for people and planet by this every decision you make um so yeah so we kind of set that out there and we were really proud to we got accreditation in, in December 2021 and we you know we did fairly well um we've got a you know our ethical resume on our website you can read all about our b corp you can see where we got scored where we got no points you know and and i think that's part of again the whole concept around b corp is being more upfront and transparent about what you do and what you're not doing and why and then the more you appreciate something you're not doing what can you do about it you know don't just don't talk about it you know that's just you know that's that's who we are um nothing's perfect so um so yeah so b corp is this global movement um and they're in the uk which is really interesting we've got a, a kind of sub organization of it called the better business act where they're challenging westminster and i'd like to see the same done in scotland we're challenging westminster to change the companies act which is our founding law with regards to companies and basically changing it that we really kind of think about how we don't just drive stakeholder wealth in terms of the equity holders accountancy kicking back in again um but how we really um it shouldn't be that kind of you know that shouldn't be the prime focus as long as we look after the stakeholders first and then we can see and and how much we can get away with it's really got to be slightly um different so they're looking to change the companies act fundamentally so every single business has this obligation to people and planet before profit you cannot exploit the planet for profit you, there is no planet b you know all of these things so um so yeah so we're really quite excited 
being the little mill with no experience in these old looms to really yeah just try and encourage people to think differently you know and this goes back to our legacy we be the little mill but maybe we're part of a bigger movement and that for me is the biggest success it's not about being a mill that has eventually 100 people and you know it's about the impact that's that's the best form of measurement we could ever ever put ourselves against sounds very good yes impressive <laughs> i would like to say with regards to patagonia um that the, when they stop making millions and millions of polyester fleeces i will be a bit more positive to yeah. them because i think they're doing more for the spread of microplastics now than for anything else <laughs> You know, it's really interesting because we've seen B Corp um, conversations floating around on some of that. Um, so, yes, yeah, so, I mean, they were one of the initial trailblazers. But I think you're right in terms of the realisation around microfibres when it comes from virgin polyesters and recycled polyesters. You know, the, the degradation and the shedding um, accelerating at that level. Absolutely, you know, outerwear in terms of its technical fabrics is... Um, something that needs to change and we're seeing that i don't want to name other ones in the uk but there's other ones in the uk where there's questioning of you know how good you know what is b corp but then at the same time i have to say nick is that you know it's better than those business i still feel even so they're not perfect it's better than those who've not signed up at all because there is an there's an intention and there's nobody on that there, but they're willing to put themselves forward to be challenged. So I think create, you know, so there's a few, as I say, if you in the UK, there's a little rebellious kind of chat off on the lines, and they're like, "What about this company? They should be B Corp." And I'm like, "But they're putting themselves out there. They're at least doing it better than maybe everyone else in their sector who's not even signed up." So, so I still think there's a credit for that because they'll you can then obviously I think openly go to businesses like that who have the right intention and ask them to be more and they will want to be more so i still like to yeah even when nobody's perfect at least they're trying yeah i'll, I'll, I'll yeah. agree with that totally, <laughs> totally now i did notice when i was reading your website that you do something very important with regards to not overproducing yeah yeah no absolutely and i think that again is going down to the the one of my findings from this industry is that we produce billions and billions of garments globally and some of them are never worn. Some of them are worn once, you know, and the waste colonisation that's happening in the global south, when you start looking at it, is really quite harsh and hard. Um, so, I'm, and the problem is not, well, how do we work out how to recycle this? You're like, no, we just don't produce it in the first place. It's that scenario where somebody's in the bathroom and they're like, the water's running out the bath. Somebody shouts, I have a bucket. Somebody else shouts, I've got a bigger bucket. Somebody shouts, I've got a curved bucket. I can go around the end of the bath. And meanwhile, you want to walk into the room and say, turn the tap off. You know, it's just kind of <laughs> the kind of irony of the situation is bonkers. So I'm saying, turn the tap off. You know, and I think when we see a lot of discussions around textiles and clothing right now, and everybody's talking about, I'll plant a tree, I'll use this, you know, new eco version of whatever, um, whatever the kind of greenwashed or the green aspect of it is, or they're talking about, we've done this, we've done that, we've got bees in the roof of our office now in London or whatever. At what point do they have the wherewithal to list how many garments they've produced in the year and how many of them they've destroyed, how many they've put to, um, um, yeah, as I say, destroyed, or, or actually how many times do they sell, you know, 
from you know a hundred products to the same person in a year you know what are they doing about their production because we can be really work out how to do so much with say organic with organic cotton growing and we've reduced the water intensity so therefore it's fine we're going to crack on producing all of these organic t-shirts for all those charity runs that people just wear for two minutes with a picture at the end of the charity run and it goes in a drawer we're going to keep going because we've worked out the solution and um but it still doesn't deal with the fact of overproduction you know again just because we can doesn't mean we should so for us we are very limited and we will be limited we're limited by four looms we're limited by speed we're limited to how many meters of fabric we can produce and we're limited therefore how many garments we can produce from that quota per annum never will there be more than four looms ever at this mill Ooh. and um yeah no absolutely and i um and then when we um make you know, a small basis then we've really tried to introduce this more ready it's a new way of thinking, but again, it's about, about the past. We make clothes to people's measurements. Women's clothing has this crazy sizing regimes in different countries that I do not know who they relate to. Um, so when a gen, yeah, men. Although maybe trousers, you're maybe more got your waist size in there. You're thirty two, thirty six, or forty inch. Yep, even then, there's vanity sizing. That's true. That's true. So, well, uh... women. We have just randoms, 8s, 16s, 22s. You know, we don't, you know, we, what is that? So we had um, changed and we created this collection we make four times a year, made to order. It's called our four times a year collection. Um, and oh. very much, we very much have customers engage with us, tell us all their sizes. Do they want to have a pocket? Do they want to have a tall neck? You know, they build their Lego garment and we make to measure. And we make it every three months, we make another batch. And every three months, we make another batch. So, so yeah, so we will have absolute limits on our capacity for a reason. Um, but, yeah, it's and, and we, we've disclosed that to all of our customers, how many kilts we made, for example, last year, or how many hoodies we made last year. And I think, yeah, it's, it's having other businesses, despite how environmentally friendly they are, are they producing the X billion of garments that are not being worn? <laughs> um, and And I know that, they're, the tipping points in some of this, the reason that they're mass producing is it actually works out to be cheaper in the long run because, you know, mm. of the economies of scales that they're trying to bring to their bottom line. Well, if you're sending a container from Bangladesh, you might as well fill it up. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it's all factored in there. The losses, the write-offs, it's still cheaper based on their modelling to create all of this and bin half of it. But the ethical cost is massive. And this is where we need to, one, as consumers challenge that and governments to really tighten up on that as well, because our planet cannot take that for 200 years. No, I mean, also when you hear about companies like Burberry just setting fire yes. to their unsold stock, I mean, that is truly taking the piss in these times. Oh, absolutely. When you've got people going to food banks and people in poverty, yeah, just to protect the prestige of a brand. To, and that's when you go to margin, ethical margin, just because something's expensive doesn't make it ethical either. That's <laughs> more status. I'm playing into people's sense of materialism, possibly, um, and brand. Um, so, yeah, so, yeah, cheap, obviously, is a clear indicator of maybe someone's not had a fair wage in, a, in this process whatsoever. 
but by paying more does not mean that it's ethical. Um, so yes, that's another thing that we've we've tried to do. Having learned the craft, learned how long it takes to make fabric, how long it takes to make clothes, we have price transparencies on our and everything we make. So we'll tell you how many hours it takes to make that jumper. We'll tell you and we'll break it down. We'll tell you how much um how much fabric and the cost of that fabric goes into it. We'll tell you what our markup is. So we have nothing to hide. And then to help you along the journey of understanding of buying less, paying more, loving more, is that if you wear this for three times a week or for three years, the cost per wear is 5p, you know, compared to the maybe something you bought at 50, 25 pound on sale, you wore it to the one night out and you never wore it again. That is the most expensive piece that you've ever bought. So we're trying to kind of nudge people to help them think a little bit more about these things and use that as interesting solutions to assess what they buy going forward. The press transparency is very interesting. I mean, I had a, a good look around there. And yeah. your markup is, I mean, very low compared to yeah. uh, other brands. Uh, do you get any feedback from customers on? Do they appreciate it? Do they, yeah, do they even no, notice it? Yeah, a lot still don't notice, I think, because we've got so much information on our website. Um, you know, usually these types of websites, when they're a commercial product, it's like, actually just get the right image and the right pop-up to appear on the right page with a suggested add-on in the basket. This is the conversion you're trying to data and and, and target out of these people <laughs> who are on your website. We're the complete opposite. We want people to really want to take time to understand. And so, yeah, so it's a new way. It's, we're very unusual for women's clothing, you know, um, to have so much information around all of that. But no, we definitely, we've had so many amazing customers over the years just reach out to us and say, oh my goodness, you have completely transformed me. You know, and it's not just clothing. It then starts to spill into everything else in your life. Um, just really appreciated us sharing our learnings over the last five or six years with them um, or just people who've just got lost in our website and just find it fascinating like we rebelled from social media a year ago we just unplugged we thought no we came off it we put a rationale out there and we said you know what this is just as for all the good we think there's some things in there fundamentally flawed and we just have to say we're not in we're out and we pulled off it and people I mean, still to this day, people are like, oh, my God, I love that you're not on social media because I can just come to your website and find you. They just don't have to get lost in the, you know, the FOMO or the black hole of, oh, my goodness. Um, they just go and chill out on our website and we put our pictures up on our social galleries there uninterrupted. You decide when you want to come in and out. So so we're so it's become a bit of a thing of ours for the last five or six years. We kind of like, how do we push this further? How do we make this? You know, how do we? be the change let's do it and people think you're mad i get the sense that being a rebel is really doing the opposite of what you should be doing at every point so you made the bold move to ditch social media how did that yeah. come about how did it work out yeah so we've actually just per passed our anniversary we've been we've unplugged for over a year now i think it was 18th of october but yeah i mean we are and just to make everyone assured and clear we are super social we're a very social bunch of people we're a very social brand but we 
decided with a build-up of various things, as you know, rebellious people from the Highlands of Scotland tend to do, is we go, nope, we're not doing that. Um, but yeah, we unplugged. And I think it was, you know, don't get me wrong, for those who maybe knew about us earlier, maybe from 2018 onwards, we were on it all the time. Twitter, Instagram, we didn't quite go down the TikTok route <laughs> at that point, but we're very, very posting trying to post daily and everyone was super kind and we were engaging and reaching people um but there there felt like there was a few things changing maybe around 2022 and um, in particular in the UK we'd seen a couple of aspects to be honest in the UK we'd seen um you know kind of um pioneering cases with regards to mental health and the vulnerability of people on social media and the degrees of protection that um that's in place for these people to see content that is targeted, you know, and is very much, you know, in some respects, preying on their vulnerability and their 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 weaknesses. Um, and and I felt like, gosh, this is this is not great. Um, and don't get me wrong, there's always two sides to everything because there is a lot still about social media that I, you know, I love so much. But that aspect, in particular, a young girl case in the UK, you know, where she'd taken her own life and the reality of being in a space that, you know, was harmful to people was something that was ethically challenging for me. Um, was it worth it to sell a scarf potentially? And don't get me wrong, we weren't all sales posts. We were very much sharing what we did and people love seeing behind the scenes. But I just was trying to make a statement point around these platforms can be so much more. And I don't know if you'll remember, or some of the listeners will remember, a time when we had a phone book and a yellow pages. <laughs> you oh, know, yeah. and there was a bit, yeah. you remember this, the yellow pages. Oh, yeah. And I re remember this kind of social space. When did it stop? You know, where's the lines of personal, the lines of business? You know, where does all that come in? And I get the whole social, here's granny doing this with like, you know, first walking with the baby and all of this amazing stuff. And then you've got all this business stuff trying to jump on to the back of it. And I felt like we needed the yellow pages and the phone book thing back again to give protection. And also as a business, I mean, we were being so, we were being affected mentally, you know, you know, we're always felt like, are we good enough? Is, why has nobody seen our post? Does anybody like it? You'll maybe resonate with this as well. You're like, do you just throw it out into the black hole? And there's this fear of missing out. You as a business, this kind of anxiety that would build daily, our posts are not good enough. We need to do this. We need to get more. And it just was like that whole quality over quantity thing was being compromised. And so we did this big analogy of a, of a rock concert, which is on our website when the people want to read about how we've gone, you know, we unplugged and rebelled and our rationale and our justification for it, which I quite like this cool little gathering, little festival in a park. There's only maybe a couple of hundred people there and it's never reached the stages of massive mega Glastonbury, which I know is a good festival too. But the 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 whole meaning of connection, you know, in a meaningful way gets lost, it gets diluted. And, you know, there's a lot of harmful things can happen when you're really trying to scale something. So, so yeah, so there was a couple of threads of anxiety, frustrations in these platforms, you know, very much looking at their business model. They were they were capitalizing on data. That was their business model. And to right. see so many people struggling ethically was just this is you know I have to leave the room I can't be in the room if I'm in the room I say this is okay 
So so we unplugged a year ago and, and then don't get me wrong, lots of people were like, You are off your head, Claire. <laughs> what are you doing? This is nuts. How will people find you? How will people know what you're doing? And you're going, Do you know what? It wasn't that long ago we didn't have social media and we were you know, everybody was fine. Um so I just believed in about connecting with the real people in a more meaningful way, in a kind way. So it was inviting everyone to our website. You'll not be interrupted. You'll not be tracked. We won't use your data. You know, if you want to hang out with us and read about our journey, we still want to share it with you. But we just want to do it in a way that we can feel like we're taking responsibility for your care, your mental health. You're dedicating time to us and our story. Let's make sure you're safe. Um, so yeah, so we did that. So we, we're not the first brand to have done that. And you, and you know, there's lots of people, high profile and other brands, who have unplugged, just for very similar reasons. Um, until that space can be made um, more transparent, kinder, and as I say, bring back the yellow pages <laughs> and bring back the phone book to have this very clear purpose behind the platform. You know, and that. So yeah, so that's just another aspect of you know our rebellious ways i suppose doing things a bit differently doing things a bit disruptively uh yeah i mean that is a very bold move going away from social media because that is totally bucking the trend which says that you have to be all over social media you have to have posts daily at certain intervals and you have to interact and you have to do this and that and i mean for a small company like yours i mean that takes an awful lot of time as well and you have to have experts at it content producers and strategies and everything yeah it's it's a whole other animal on its own and then and i think the sheer volume of conversation on these platforms today and then looking at everything else in life you know that's personal it's political it's environmental you know there you could start to see echo chambers developing you could start seeing toxicity developing you know there was it was all became you know very much bun fight sometimes and it's about going viral and, and all of these things that were triggers, as you say, as a small business, this is what you need to do. And I think, do you not just need to be a kind person who really who's really passionate about what you do and just connect with people who want to, you know, t- have that uninterrupted, um, not kind of um, distracted conversation with you? Um, and we just we just felt like it was, yeah, the, it was the right thing to do. And, and we haven't looked back. We're so so glad we did it um i would encourage others i genuinely would because you know the acts of rebellion then give birth to something else you know the new version you know it's so young it's the first round of it i think you know there could be better ways of developing that digital social um interaction you know globally but um it's just understanding the motives and i just felt like there was the, there were some dark sides to it and yeah hugely time consuming i mean you're a small business you know you're you're you could be on you could be doing social media like for 10 12 hours a day easily oh, yeah. but but yet yeah, you've got a business to run and you you know and it, it becomes a bit of a yeah it becomes hugely pressured to and I think that also fed into another bit that was frustrating was this let's post everything that looks perfect and happy and rosy and mm. progressive and look at us with this person and we've got this celebrity and everything's amazing you know there's romantic happy space which is you know happy is but the reality you felt like you couldn't actually you felt like you were telling a lie sometimes <laughs> you know because some days it's like 
some days you're like oh my goodness this has gone wrong what we're gonna do we're gonna have to be up all night doing this you know but that wasn't something you could put on social media because people think you might be moaning or you felt like people might think you'd be moaning you know there was just this you constantly had to push out this happy vibe and which is important but at the same time there was this kind of loss of reality a little bit Mm. because yeah so um so yes, yeah, so all of those things just accumulated, and as I say, you know what we saw happening to other people, and we thought, no, this this is just not worth it. So, so yes, yeah, so we we found that a lot of customers were actually really, really delighted we did it because they were getting a bit sick, sick of it, fed up. They knew it was controlling their life. Everybody's like, oh my goodness, I need to come off Facebook, or you know, they find themselves scrolling for an hour and they can't remember anything. So a lot of our customers were like, this is brilliant, happy. Send an email, do a little chat message brilliant we can you know they they actually really applauded us for for coming off and so in addition to bucking the social media trend you've also decided to be fully transparent about pricing or cost and pricing yeah yeah another thing i mean it's it's all reflective of there's no strategy behind this in the sense of this will look good it's literally living breathing learning journeys for us who work here um, and for you know us as consumers prior to Prickly Thistle, we didn't really think about the cost of these things. Um, we just consumed and we felt like as we learned, we felt like, oh, we're now more informed. How cool would that be to let other people be more informed or start thinking that way to be more informed and rationalising in our head why things happen a certain way, you know, why prices. Price is a really big aspect to clothing to fashion and um, you know there's the stereotypes expensive must be ethical doesn't mean the case um, mm. cheap must be um, you know hugely damaging well sometimes you got to think about how it doesn't add up but um, but yeah so we decided to do a price transparency explainer on every single product where we tried to break down you know the fabric costs how many hours it takes to make the garment you know quality check it it's surprising how many minutes 10 minutes here and there it takes when you're making a garment just pressing it <laughs> for anyone who's made mm. clothes they know that you're back and forth to the hot iron to press before you know preparations everything cutting um you know the final qc making sure it looks great before it goes in as you know it's craft tissue and all of this kind of stuff we wanted to be really clear as to all of these 10 15 minute steps they add up and for people to understand the true cost of making and then be very clear in our markup as well, which we've, you know, we're very, very different in the sense that markups can be significant, three, four, five, even higher. Um, in some cases, um, times the cost price, whereas we're we're never more than one. We're kind of float between half, half cost is our markup. And that just to give us a little bit of extra resource to go off and do or to fund times when we're not just trying to sell because we're we're out doing stuff with the local school or we're doing stuff with um, government, you know, it gives us a bit of gunpowder, shall we say, to really tackle some of the ethical pieces that bother us as well. So, so yeah, so it's, but it's, try, it's, it's trying to get people to read it. People are not used to seeing that on websites. It's quite surprising how people don't see that. Yes, I can imagine it is because really you're just focused on the price, aren't you, when you're browsing, you're out shopping, but yeah, I, I imagine with your bean counting background, you're making sure <laughs> that the business is still viable, that you're not oh, abs- actually having yeah. too low markups. 
No, no. I mean, it is a fine line because you want to be as affordable and accessible as possible. Um, so you're putting all this information out there. You're giving, you know, we are all of a sudden saying, look, I'll be the first one to say that I wouldn't spend more than £50 on a jumper. Now I'm like, actually, I need to really think about, you know, where it came from, knowing what goes into just the, the natural raw materials being processed, etc., to go into a woven or knitted garment to be made and QC'd and everything. Um, I... By putting that on there, we just wanted to really sort of, um, yeah, to get people to think slightly differently about about the information they look at. And as you say, it's usually pictures. How does it look? What's the kind of lifestyle imagery I'm buying into? And what is the price? You know, the importance of the raw materials, where it's made, the costs. You know, we've probably, yeah, sometimes people think maybe we have too much information, but I think we're, we should be more, nor- this, what we have should be more normal than the bare minimum. <laughs> And just lots of pictures. So you're five years in now since the day yeah. you had your grand, slightly vague idea, I think. <laughs> five years. Um, where where are you at now? How's it gone? Have you reached your goals? No, there's there's never there'll be a never ending goal, I think. Um I say to a few people that, you know, as long as in terms of where we are today or where we are in five years from now, it's, we are, you know, as long as we're real, relevant, relatable to the world we live in, that is our model compass, that's our compass for existence, that's the way we're building this business to be part of a community, be it local or be it global. So, so yeah, so in five years, we could be doing anything, to be honest. It's just really... For us, it's been hopefully being receptive enough and intuitive enough to understand what are the battles of our time and how can we help inform, just let people make informed decisions. You know, and I think that's that's just true of everything from the moment you bring up your child to cross the road is informed decision making. And that's really what we're very, very passionate about. Our beginnings are tartan in the Highlands of Scotland. Absolutely. Why not? <laughs> But it's but it's that whole principle of being in existence, you know, and, and really showing that we don't look at things in silos anymore as to what product or service they deliver or what's their agenda, what's their elevator pitch. It's like, what kind of people are they? What do they genuine you know, what are they genuinely here for? What do they care about? And I think that's you know, that's a big a big change because we're we've been so conditioned to think that's where you go for the chocolates bars this is where you go for the shoes and this is where you go for the iron and this is where you go for um whatever service you're looking for but it's good ethics it's good people so so yeah in five years as long as the world keeps changing dramatically I think we'll be changing and um, rather than being a business that maybe doesn't know what it wants to do I think we're reacting to the world we live in always based on that you know real relevant relatable if we can put our voice to something and help inspire an informed decision with somebody else, then that's the greatest gift we can give to anyone, you know, just to think that they now have just, yeah, they've just got that liberation. They've got that transparency. They've got the ask in them and yeah, just let that ripple out. I think, you know, it's utopian maybe Nick, but you know, I just think (laughs) you've got to believe in some changes well, I mean, I think there's a big thing to be said for at least meaning well. Um, and I think that's what I picked up on when I first saw your website. Yeah. Uh, after one of my uh, most dedicated listeners had tipped me off about you. 
the fact that you did actually consciously have opinions about wanting to do better and you weren't afraid to put them on your website, you were being transparent and open about things. And um, whereas most companies pull the old greenwashing card out and just spout about things, they have ambitions and they would like to, but not actually delivering. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. That that corporate world, um, yeah, as you say, of mission statements and all of this great imagery and infographics around, yeah, the rhetoric of what is required of the time. But there's nothing like just you know getting hands on and walking the walk and 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 owning and embracing the challenges, the failures. We're not perfect, but talking about it, but not denying our good intentions as to what we're about and we feel like them you know will cause discomfort for sure we you know people you know talking about you know fossil fuel clothes and people are like oh my goodness you know I've got I'm you know you have that conversation with someone they'll go oh my goodness they, they shrink in and think oh she, is she judging me for my polyester please top that I've got on and I'm not but you know that until we bring the elephants um you know not just in the room but onto the table and and really you know, address what's there. We're, we can't move forward, and and sometimes it is uncomfortable, and it sometimes is a bit challenging. But but yeah, and I think if we don't, I just don't want to think about what would happen if we don't. So so yeah, so we try and own the realness of the situation and um, welcome anyone to ask us anything or how to be better. How do we inspire? How do we push boundaries? And how do we influence others to think think differently? And much of the time, it is the industry setting the agenda for the discussion. Uh, I mean, the response from the industry when people say, stop making so much crappy clothes. And they'll say, can we tell you about organic cotton? You can yeah. keep buying. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You know, that you'll know when you're with, from clothes, and you know, seasonal trends every, you know, twice a year, every single year, there is new collections, new collections. I mean, that's just bonkers, you know. Think historically, we would have worn the same clothes for decades. Never mind one season, which might be just you know as short as a couple of months. You know, you've got other big fast fashion brands who are dropping new stuff every single day. You know, in in triple quadruple figures. Um, but so so yes, yeah, so we're it's but yeah, the industry. It's you know it makes money, doesn't it? For that, <laughs> you know that's the way it's been built. But I think the reality is that it's it's not sustainable. It's, you know, we cannot keep going like this. And I think all of the evidence is there, but it's just about consumer behaviour and that critical mass change of thinking that will be, I think, fundamental to, you know, I think legislation will be one thing, but that will probably be after. Um, I think it is, yeah, it's conscious critical mass thinking and saying we're going to demand something different. And these, you know, I'd like to think we're a good little brand. You probably know thousands of amazing little brands, you know, and and they're and it's people just finding them. They're out there. They just need your support. You know, they're good guys. They're good women. They're good. You know, they're good people. Find them and support them. You know, and it might mean that you get a bit less, but actually, that is a massive ripple effect of change. Hmm. Indeed. <laughs> now. You wanted to ask yes. me some questions. 
Yes, I did. I did. So the first question, which is slightly touched on there, um, I know when we just spoke before we came online, I was really intrigued. It's my usual line for anyone who comes to do a tour at the mill or I get to it. So, oh, so I go, okay, so how did you find out about Prickly Thistle? <laughs> well, as I said, it was my dedicated listener, Mark, who um, who has moved to very close to Inverness and his wife Ooh. likes what you're doing. So Mark being uh, pretty attuned to what I'm interested in on the podcast, uh, tipped me off and said, you should talk to these people if you can get hold of them. And um, well, luckily you responded. The rest, the rest is history. Well, please pass on my huge thanks to them. Um, and they're, they're welcome to come visit any time. Um, but no, I, I just find it fascinating because we're not on social media, as you know. How do people no. find out? But it just, it just proves we don't need to be in social media. <laughs> they're trying to be a little secret. <laughs> uh, but I've also, I mean, um, I'm really fascinated about, you know, what you do. And with the podcast, um, I just would like to know what gave you the, you know, the impetus to kind of go down the podcast route with your passion, which is, looking, you know, talking about clothes, you know, past, present or future. But to put this into a podcast format, and, because this is a huge commitment um, for what you do. You know, this is one is recording and here I am taking up five days of next time <laughs> with this one. But all the editing and the preparing and finding people to interview, you know, you must be passionate about. It. But what what really drove you to go down this route? Well, I think ever since I was very, very young, I've had this um, thing about sharing my discoveries. And I've spoken about this uh, once before on my Ask Me Anything uh, podcast, I think. But where I'd get, I keep become being very interested in something and have this burning desire for everyone else to be just as interested. Mm -hmm. And in recent times, I, I mean, I was blogging for about eight years and then kind of became a bit fed up with that, it's a bit worn out. But then podcasting was a new avenue to tell people about the interesting stuff I keep finding everywhere. So um, with the pandemic, I uh, did some Instagram live chats, which didn't really work that well. But in a podcast format, it's better because then you can actually have people who listen to them instead of just skipping in and out. So it just kind of built up from there. So three years and 130-odd episodes in, that's where I am now. And I'm one of these guys who, once you start something, you can't quit. You yep. have to keep going because it's sort of my legacy now. <laughs> <laughs> I think, and I think, and I think it's wonderful, but, you know, and I couldn't agree more on that whole conversation piece for people to dip in and out in their own space and their, you know, they decide when they can engage and when they can join in so they can go into your your playlists and pick up any episode as they're you know making the supper or out for a walk or driving in the car um i would be interested to know if 131 um over three years is a serious amount of podcasts um on a weekly basis well just about one a week you it maybe had christmas off week, do you yeah. me yeah maybe had christmas I, off <laughs> I, do, I do occasionally one. have a break yeah. have a break I just wondered of all of them you know is there anything that you have found really surprising is there one little takeaway you can take from this first two three years that's kind of gosh well I didn't you know because I've explained to you how my journey's gone all over around the around the houses what's what's changed or surprised you from your what initial keep, what I keep coming back to is that if you give people a chance everyone has a compelling story and 
there's the stories and the passions and interests. And if you just let people talk, things will will happen. But I've yeah. had so many interesting guests and so many interesting stories. And I mean, I mentioned to you the politics of patents uh, episode, which was just mind blowing because it's sort of stuff you've never heard about before. Yeah. So, um, yeah. As long as I Just keep love- finding interesting people, then I'll keep going because I only talk to people I want to talk to. That's my <laughs> sort of. I just hope my listeners give me have a little faith in me, so they might think, "Oh, this episode doesn't look like it's for me," but trust me, I selected yeah. that guest and had a chat, and it will be good. No, I mean I personally can't wait to share this all with our um, our followers on email. Um, because I've enjoyed a couple. I'm going to have to spend a good few couple of months of back-to-back listening to catch up with 131, <laughs> I have to confess. But now I've found you. Um, the other question I wanted to ask you was, so, you know, a few times I've talked about, you know, historically 200 years ago, and, and one of our kind of many slogans, I should really write a book of slogans, is what will what will they say in 200 years? And with, with the core topic of your conversations with everyone is around clothes and other stuff connected to clothing what do you think would be one of the the most significant changes in the clothing sector in 200 years that is an incredibly tricky and involved question because i mean if we look 200 years back in time people were still sitting at home weaving on their little looms yeah there was almost no technology at all. And then considering that the 200 years after that, how much society, technology, everything has just accelerated. I mean, if you ask me, how are we making clothes in 25 years? That might be sort of equivalent space-time development-wise. Yeah. I mean, I think obviously oil-based clothing is on its way out. Will there be other synthetic variants? I mean, probably, um, even though we are seeing a return to more natural fibres. Will we still be making clothes at the same rate we're doing now? I mean, that's also accelerated, but that's going to have to reel in. But, uh, I mean, all the companies that are making mad amounts of money there will be resisting. And I think that is where change has to come, because we can say that, oh, as consumers, we have a lot of power and we can say, no, Zara, no, Shein, we will not shop with you. But given the marketing forces they have, it's kind of us against a tsunami of marketing. So I think unless legislation is in place that will make them actually stop doing what they're doing, I don't think there's much hope really of changing it. I mean, how are you going to get everyone in the world to shun them? Um, I don't know. I think there will be more um, made clothing made uh, to fit us using yeah. uh, more advanced technology. I mean, we're seeing it now with 3D knitting machines. So you can have something made to your exact measurements. I have in the past talked about the um, notorious dot suit made by a Chinese company where you put on this tight fitting black suit, with all these dots on and the dots are coded in a special way so that when you do a little twirl in front of your uh, the app on your phone, it scans your body which is surprisingly accurate and can be used then to actually make clothes custom for you. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, that's the sort of first version of the technology. But I mean, clearly that has potential, at least for stuff that has to fit you really well. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I think tight fitting clothes hasn't always been what people were after because uh, you can't work in tight fitting clothes, apart from estate agents, I suppose. <laughs> but yeah. uh, I mean, they're more sort of festive clothes but if you're toiling the earth or repairing stuff or moving about you want something loose so i i really don't know 200 years yeah are there even people in 200 years oh of course there is nick (laughs) (laughs) of course there is no it's just it is it's no i think it's fascinating you're right it just shows some of the complexities of where people feel we are with that space because there is there's so much um, that can be done, but should we do it? You know, and I think, yeah, it's, it's funny how I think we can we can influence our own future. But, you know, I think that's it's really interesting, isn't it? That shows, yeah, clothing, yeah, trying to find the words here, but I'm not quite finding them. But, no, I think, yeah, I'm going to yeah, ask this question to lots of people and I'm going to squ- scribble down what you said and I'm going to have this book of, this is what they said in <laughs> 200 years we're going to have. But it's but it's interesting, yeah. I would like to think, though, the one point where you said maybe where um, consumer demand maybe won't change. I hope I hope it does, you know, in the sense of fast fashion. I know the marketing machines are incredible you know this this industry is worth so so much to them on an annual basis and i think more than people really can could grasp as to how significant it is um but yeah it's 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 a big ask isn't it to get that critical mass ripple effect of where businesses could be you know effectively you know kneecapped to quote richard branson in some respects and what's happened to you know in terms of no longer having customers you know how do you how, how would you do that? Um, yeah, is it impossible or is it not? Um, yeah, but... I mean, part of it is actually, I mean, how do you make people hang on to what they have? There's a lot of talk about buying better, buying less, keeping stuff, cherishing it. But how do you create things that people will prefer to use again and again instead yeah. of the sort of discarding culture? Yeah. Um I've asked so many guests that, and no one has really had much of an idea. I think, but um... yeah, no, I completely agree. Maybe this is a question some of your your listeners can write into you with. But it's it's maybe maybe it's the opposite. You know, why do you not feel attached to these garments? You know, why you know your child do you feel attached to? You're not going to dispose of that after a few years and say, I'm going to get a new one. This one's not quite what, <laughs> what I expected it to be. But why do we why do we not feel emotionally connected and invested in our clothing? And it's, you know, rather, you know, understanding psychology and the behaviour behind why nobody feels like something is, you know, why it's um, not valuable or worth something to them. I think sometimes it's because they pay very, very little for it, you know, and therefore... You know, it's like when you buy a car, you know that's a significant investment. It's an it's given it's a normal it's a norm or a given that cars are expensive and they are designed to last for years and you take good care of it. And I think price point, you know, your homes, I think is wondering I think price has been a big, big problem in creating disconnect. Massive, massive problem. But yeah, it's asking people why they don't feel attached to anything when it comes to textiles. Even a cushion for your home, you know, this kind of thing. But um yeah. yeah, it's it's um 
Yeah. So if any of your listeners can tell you tell you why, and you can let me know, and you can let everybody else know why people don't feel invested in in their clothing, um, yeah, yeah, it, rather than because the people the people who are invested, they they know they know all of this. It's those who don't think about it that way. That's the ones we want to have conversations yeah. with and just understand where they're coming from. If I get some replies, I'll put out a bonus episode where I. Um... <laughs> Yay, there you go. We have that documented <laughs> for the future. <laughs> so, um, is there anything we should have mentioned that we haven't mentioned? Anything coming up? Any uh, prickly thistle bits of news? Oh, gosh. Thistle no. tidbits, maybe? <laughs> thistle tidbits. Oh, I quite like that. There's a wee jingle to that. I can hear the bells <laughs> ringing. It's a bit mistletoe, thistletoe. Um, no, there's nothing other than, yeah, we just, yeah, if you want to jump on our, anybody wants to visit our website, come and hang out, ask us any questions. They're more than welcome to. Or if they're in the Highlands of Scotland, they can come and visit us and see our 100-year-old wounds and meet the team. But no, I think... Um, yeah, we're just open to people who want to help, you know, solve these problems. You know, that's this is it. We've kind of, we just own it, embrace it. So we don't have anything in particular happening or that I can tell you. No. <laughs> um, but, but no, we're just, we're here for the duration. And yeah, our, our passion and is going to, yeah, we're going to keep it going. And yeah, we're not going to be afraid to maybe disrupt and, and do things a bit differently, Nick. That sounds very good. I mean, once you're on a good track, <laughs> then you just want to keep going. Yep. Okay, Claire, I think we've got uh, got what we needed. But thank you so much for joining me. Brilliant. And um, No, it's been a pleasure. Bye-bye yeah, for no, now. Thank, thank you. Goodbye. And that was all for this week's Gomology. Do send me your thoughts on Claire's question, welterestad at gmail.com. Hit subscribe or follow to automatically download next week's episode as soon as it's published. If you listen on Apple Podcast, it, I would appreciate a review and a rating. If you listen on Spotify, you can also leave a rating. If you'd like to get in touch, well, you know my email address now. Or you can follow me as welterestad on Instagram. There's also Gomology Podcast on Instagram. Again, links and details in the show notes, including a link to the Patreon details. I will keep mentioning that, sorry. Uh, until next week, have fun. Bye-bye for now.